The text for the sermon this afternoon is 1 Samuel 13, verse 23, through to chapter 14, verse 14. Let's read those verses now. So 1 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 23, this is the word of God. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come up to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the story of Jonathan and his armor-bearer at the battle of Michmash is considered a masterpiece of narrative storytelling. The Holy Spirit, through the author of 1 Samuel, took the details of history and, and crafted them together in such a way that it captures our attention. It is a wonderful story. It is a wonderful retelling of God's work in history. It is in many ways a prequel to David and Goliath. The parallels are striking. A large opponent and an insignificant challenger 
an improbable victory, and then an overwhelming defeat of the Philistines. Now, many of us may be aware of the friendship that existed between David and Jonathan. But here we discover that Jonathan shares something else in common with David. He is God's man. He is a man after the Lord's heart. Now, in redemptive history, the story of Jonathan is is eclipsed by what happens just before our text and then by what happens a few chapters after our text. Before our text is the story of the Lord rejecting Saul as king because of his disobedience. Saul shows that he is not God's man, that he is not a man after the Lord's heart. And then after our text, the story of David begins, the story about the man after the Lord's heart. But between Saul and David, we find Jonathan. Saul's son and David's friend. Jonathan is a sort of transitional figure in the history of God's redemption. He stands between father and friend. He progresses from the past and he he points us towards the future. And so let us hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ as we find it in our text. And we will hear the word this, morning, this afternoon under the following theme. In contrast with Saul, Jonathan shows that he is a man after the Lord's heart. And we will see two things. In the first place, we will see Jonathan's faith in the Lord. And secondly, we will see Jonathan's actions for the Lord. So in the first place then, Jonathan's faith in the Lord. <clears throat> Now, our text begins by contrasting Jonathan and Saul. Before the actual story of the battle is told, there are two short descriptions given. One of of Jonathan and then another of Saul. And each ends with a statement about Jonathan not telling anyone, Saul or the people, about what he is doing. The short description of Jonathan's actions begins by, by telling us that a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Now this links us back to the previous chapter. It links us back to 13 verse 5 and also 13 verse 17. And it reminds us of the situation. The Philistine forces are in four groups. The main group is at Michmash. And then three raiding parties have gone out from there. Now it highlights the fact that when Jonathan says to his armor bearer in verse 1, let's go over to the Philistine outpost, that he is intending to go into the heart of enemy territory. It's a phenomenal intention. Given the state of the Israelite army that we read of in chapter 13, the verses 19 to 22, no swords or spears. And then the incredibly large number of Philistine soldiers. This action of Jonathan seems ambitious and even foolhardy. But this also links us back to something else. It links us back to 13 verse 3, where it is Jonathan who leads the Israelites in attacking the Philistines. Once again, here in our text... 
Jonathan is leading the charge, not Saul. Now, the short description of Saul that follows paints a different picture. While Jonathan is pictured going, Saul is seen sitting. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree in Migron. We're also reminded of the diminished number of troops. Saul has with him 600 men instead of the 3,000 from earlier. Reminds us that those 600 are shaking with fear. And among these 600 is Ahijah the priest wearing the ephod. Now this is an important detail. And there are two things that we need to notice about Ahijah. Because he's described in a bit of detail in our text. Now the first thing to note is his clothing. He is wearing the ephod. Now the ephod was a special garment that the the high priest would wear. It would go over their clothing and it had a little compartment inside it that held the urim and the thummim. Now, we're not sure exactly what these were, but they appear to have been something that the Lord used to speak to his people. Something that the Lord used to make his will known to his people. The Lord would be consulted. David or or the king would, would go to the high priest, consult the Lord, the high priest would reach his hand into that compartment in the, in the ephod and take out the urim and the thummim. Now, what's odd here in our text is that the Lord is not being consulted. Saul simply sits in fear. And later, in, in verses 18 and 19, when Saul actually thinks to consult the Lord, he actually shows disrespect for the Lord by starting the process and then, in effect, saying, Oh, never mind. When he says in in verse 8 and in verse 19, withdraw your hand. So the spiritual leadership of the high priest and the centrality of God's will and counsel appear to be diminished and underappreciated by Saul. Now the second thing to note is the genealogy of Ahijah. We're told quite a bit of detail who he is. He is a descendant of Eli and Phinehas. So in our text, we are being given reason to think back to the time of Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel 4. You may recall the story there. There Hophni and Phinehas took the ark of the Lord onto the battlefield like some sort of good luck charm. They tried to manipulate the Lord into, into helping them. The ark was captured by the Philistines. So here in our text, we're given reason to connect Saul to Israel's troubled past rather than to Israel's hopeful future. That, those actions by Hophni and Phinehas, they were part of Eli, Eli's line being rejected as the priestly line. So here in our text, we have a rejected king and a rejected priestly line. Now Saul's actions here also are part of a problematic pattern of behavior that we we see in chapters 14 and 15. 
sorry, 13 through 15. In these chapters, we have three instances of Saul doing something foolish and sinful. He he makes a sacrifice that he should not have. He, He binds the army with a hasty and foolish oath. He tells them they can't eat anything on the day of the battle. He causes them to sin later. And then finally, he intends to kill Jonathan for breaking that oath. It's only because the Israelites intervene that that Jonathan is not killed. Important for our text is, is the first of these sinful actions of Saul. In 1 Samuel 13, the verses 8 through 10, he presumptively sacrifices out of fear and superstition when Samuel doesn't show up when he had expected him to. We read about that earlier. Saul had a sort of, let's get this thing going before the whole army deserts type of attitude. It, It was an act of superstition and formalism, an empty act of piety. He was practicing his religion like the other nations do when they, when they attempt to manipulate or appease their gods. He had to check the sacrifice off his, to do, his to-do list. And further, he showed that he undervalued the role of the prophet, the God-given means by which God spoke to his people. He disobeyed a direct command from the Lord. He had a type of self-reliance that that looked to his own actions in carrying out religious ceremonies, but which was disconnected from a true reliance on God. And so in our text, this self-reliance continues. He has with him on the battlefield the Lord's priest, but he doesn't use him as the one who would reveal God's will. He sees God's enemies and and he quivers in fear doesn't seem to really know God or be connected to the Lord in a vital way. He doesn't seem to have a proper relationship with him. and He doesn't use God's means, the means that God has given to him. And as such, all of his actions, all of his religiosity, it flounders. It's rudderless. At the very root of Saul's problem is what the Lord speaks to. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, he is not a man after the Lord's heart. His faith is not from the heart. Now, in contrast, we see Jonathan. In verse 6 of our text, we, we find the central verse of the battle at Michmash. It is Jonathan's profession of faith. We read there, Verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan sees that they are only two. But he recognizes that they are not alone. He recognizes that the God, the almighty God of heaven and earth, is with them. So verse 6 is is a profession of faith and 
trust and reliance on the Lord. Saul sees with his physical eyes that that army and he quivers in fear. Saul sees that same army with the eyes of faith and he professes his faith. He realizes that the Lord isn't concerned with the number of soldiers, that he can deliver them whatever the odds. And then notice the way Jonathan speaks. He calls these Philistines these uncircumcised. There is here in this this confession of faith a recognition of who he is. It's a sort of line of separation. Jonathan recognizes that Israel is different from the other nations. And this is significant. The elders of Israel approached Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and they asked for a king so they could be like the other nations. And Saul is the answer to that request. Yet he is a king like the king of all the other nations. Now the line of separation between Israel and the other nations, it is faint with Saul and with the people. But with Jonathan, the man after the Lord's heart, this separation is strong. He realizes that the Philistines are not of Israel. They do not have the sign of the covenant. And Jonathan identifies himself as part of the covenant, as part of God's people. He places his confession of faith within a framework that involves a relationship with God and with God's people. And the Philistines are enemies of God and of God's people. And they are in the covenant land, the promised land. There's something inherently wrong with this picture. That a people who do not belong to the Lord are subjecting the people who do belong to the Lord. So this this identifying of the Philistines as these uncircumcised is a term of contempt. Already, Jonathan has a sense of victory in his voice as he addresses the enemy. He addresses the enemy with a statement of faith a statement of devotion to the Lord and a recognition that he belongs to the Lord. And it's out of this identification with the Lord that he can then say his next words, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, when Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act, in our behalf. He isn't resigning himself to his fate. He isn't saying, well, let's see, maybe the Lord will will help us here. No, it is a, a humble submission to the will of God. He is saying that the Lord is not required to help him. He is saying, not my will, but your will be done. This is the opposite of how the heathen nations treated their gods. They demanded oracles. They obligated their gods to do something. Jonathan here kneels before the Lord and he says, You, Lord God of Israel, you are the mighty God. And you can deliver us from anything. But there is no arrogant presumption that God must help him. 
that God must do what he wants. There is simply a complete recognition that only God can help them. Saul presumes that that God will respond to his disobedient sacrifice, that he can perform an action, and that God must act. Jonathan makes no such presumption. He simply recognizes the power of God, and he places himself in a position to be an instrument of God's power. So Jonathan is a transitional figure that the Lord raises up, that he places into the history of redemption. In the midst of Saul's failures, we see Jonathan as God's man, as a man after the Lord's heart. He's the kind of leader that God's people long for. Now the question after 1 Samuel 13 verse 14, where Saul is rejected as king, and where he is told that the Lord has found another man, a man after his heart, and he has appointed this man leader. The question after that verse is, who is the one after the Lord's heart? Now, we know that the answer is David. But here in our text, the Lord gives us a glimpse of what a leader after the Lord's heart looks like. Jonathan's faith is is an example of God's faithfulness to his people that points us to Christ. Even though God's people sin in the actions of Saul, God does not abandon them, but but he raises up Jonathan as an instrument to save his sinful people at this moment in time. And so also with Christ. Even though we are sinners, God sent His Son, our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and He provided the way for His people to be saved from sin for all time. And with Jonathan, we also catch a glimpse of how God will be faithful With Jonathan and his armor-bearer, we see the Lord delivering his people, not by the many, but by the few. And this, this points us ahead. It directs us to Christ, where God delivers his people by the one. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, and he climbed that hill of Golgotha, and he delivered all his people from all their sins. Nothing is too large for the Lord. Jonathan also points the way to the new covenant, the one of Pentecost and the one of faith. We see Jonathan moved by the Spirit to cling to the Lord and to profess his trust and reliance on the Lord. It is only by the Spirit that Jonathan could have done this. His his heart was gripped by the Holy Spirit and he professed his faith and his trust in the Lord. He points ahead to the only true way 
that we can come to God. He points ahead to a spirit-filled people who are a people after the Lord's heart, who look to God and trust in Him. He points to a people whose actions grow from the heart, from faith. And He points away from self-reliance. He points away from an empty formalism, an empty action, which we saw with Saul. Saul's actions were without heart rather than actions from the heart. So don't, don't be paralyzed by what you should or, or shouldn't do. Don't look to yourself. If you do, you will be sitting with Saul under a tree in Migron, quaking in fear. Look to Christ. Put your faith in Him. And you will receive a heart that longs after God. Look to the places that God has given us where he reveals his will. Look to his word. Look to the preaching of that word. Look to the sacraments and pray in the spirit. Do not spurn the means that God has given whereby our relationship with him grows. And from the Holy Spirit you will receive the heart that Jonathan had, that David had. Even more, you will receive the heart of Christ. The Lord will move you, and your actions will be from the heart, growing out of faith. Let's now shift our our focus and look now at Jonathan's actions for the Lord. Now, we need to go back to the beginning and examine our text through the lenses of Jonathan's actions. So, we have Saul sitting under the pomegranate tree in Migron, and we have Jonathan making his way north to Michmash Pass. It's about a three-kilometer journey. Now, he and his armor-bearer come to what is called the Wadi Su'a'init, Now, a wadi is a dried-out riverbed. In the rainy seasons, these wadis are filled with water, but in the dry seasons, they're used as roads. And it's likely that Saul and his men used this wadi when they went from Michmash to Gilgal in 13 verse 4. Now, this wadi was bordered by, by by two cliffs, On the one side, on the south side, you had Senna. And then the north side, you had Bozes. Jonathan's strategy is that they will go down Senna and then up Bozes. Now, it's an interesting strategy. This part of Michmash will be less protected. And interestingly, in World War I, some British troops used this exact same strategy to take a Turkish outpost that was located there. A certain major in the, in the British army was told by his superiors that they were to attack a strategically important village named Mikmash. Now the name sounded familiar to him, so he went and he searched through his Bible and he found our text. 
And then he took his Bible to his superiors and he, he showed them our text. And they sent out scouts and those scouts found the pass. And so what they did is instead of sending in the whole brigade for a frontal attack as they had been planning to do, they sent in one company. And that company followed Jonathan and his armor bearer's footsteps. They went down Sena and they went up Bozes and they took the village, catching the Turkish army off guard. So, so Jonathan was not doing something unwise here. We should bear in mind that strategically, Michmash was an important village. It was at a junction of roads, and, and control of Michmash meant control of much of the surrounding area. The reason that the village was important to the Turks and to the Brits is the same reason that it was important to the Israelites and to the Philistines. So there was an element of sound military strategy here with Jonathan's actions. Although we're not clear exactly what Jonathan intended to do. He appears to have simply been placing himself at the Lord's disposal. And as we get back to the story, Jonathan comes to the pass, and then he expresses his intention to his armor-bearer. He says there, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, the first option would have been the desirable one. It would have been much more desirable to engage the enemy as they were coming down the cliffs. And we would have expected Jonathan to opt for that one as the sign of assurance and victory from the Lord. But he doesn't. He opts for the impossible. He opts for the impossible as the sign of deliverance. So now we have... Jonathan and his armor-bearer at the bottom of the pass, hidden from sight with a plan in place. It remains now only to act. This, this is the moment. There, there is no more thinking or deliberating. From a place of safety, they must step forward and put themselves into a place of vulnerability. All advantages are cast off. They show themselves. They reveal themselves to the Philistines. And once the Philistines see them, they mock them. They say, come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. They're mocking them, sort of like, come on up here. we got a little secret we want to tell you. The Philistines have, have called them up. Jonathan has received his sign. And he responds by, by treating the battle as completed. See verse 12. Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. The battle is over. It simply has to happen yet. Now the Philistines don't realize it. But they have walked into a lobster trap. It's a trap. It's like a cage that lets you get in, but then you can't walk out. They have been inv 
invited to do their worst and they have accepted the invitation thinking that victory was theirs. They had no idea that they had just committed the act that would lead to their defeat. For with these two men climbing up the cliffs is the God of heaven and earth. There will be no escape. Martin Luther called the cross God's lobster trap for Satan. And in a way, this is true. And we must remember that first and foremost, the cross is about Christ paying for our sins in our place. But, but within that context, there is a, a sense of, of sin and of Satan overreaching. Of sin and Satan being invited to do their worst. And of them accepting that invitation, thinking that victory was theirs. But on the cross, Christ utterly and completely defeated and disarmed sin and Satan. We should always keep this in mind as we we live our lives in this sin-filled world. Christ has won the battle. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. He won the battle on the cross. And he now has ascended. And he sits at God's right hand. Ruling over all things. The battles that we face today. In our sin and in our weaknesses. He is there with us. Ruling all things. We fight our battles today. In the light of his victory. He fights our battles for us and with us, just as he fought for and with Jonathan and his armor bearer. And we shouldn't forget about the armor bearer here. He isn't simply acting as a caddy, helping Jonathan with sword selection. He follows his master's lead fully And he participates completely in the battle. This is his action as well. In verse 6, Jonathan expresses his intention to his armor bearer. And then in verse 7, the armor bearer responds. He says to Jonathan, do all that you have in mind. I am with you heart and soul. Now the Hebrew here is, is difficult to translate. And the NIV does a very good job of capturing the meaning. However, there is an element of the language used that doesn't get reflected. For those of you who know another language, you may be able to empathize. Someone can translate your words, but not get a play on words that you may have been using. And in our text, there is an emphasis on the word heart. Literally what Jonathan is told to do is, the armor bearer says, to do what is in his heart. And then the armor bearer says, I am as your heart is. So as Jonathan follows the Lord's heart, the armor bearer follows Jonathan's heart. This is in direct contrast 
to Saul and the people sitting in Gibeah. Here, with Jonathan and his armor-bearer, we have a faithful ruler with a right heart, followed by a faithful person with a right heart. Our entire text anticipates the time of David, a time where we have a people who act from faith with their faithful king. And the author of Samuel had this purpose in mind when he included this account. He is saying to his readers, he's saying to us, this is what happens when the king and the people follow the Lord. Jonathan and his armor bearer are examples of God's faithfulness in Israel's past that that serve to motivate the church in the present. When the king and the people follow the Lord, the Lord acts, and the Lord acts mightily. But even more, our text anticipates Christ. It anticipates a time when there will be a perfect king and a people whose heart is as his heart is. A heart that is changed by the Holy Spirit. A people whom the Lord acts in and for. And make no mistake, here in our text, it was the Lord's action. Jonathan simply had to trust the Lord's promise of victory. Climbing up that that cliff was a complete act of trust. There was no turning back. Two young men climbing up the cliff with their hands and their feet to a waiting enemy. It's almost a comical picture. What, What did they expect to do? Looking at this scene with physical eyes, this action was foolish bravado. However, looking with the eyes of faith, this action was natural. It was an action that came forth from faith, an action of trust. The most significant action that Jonathan and his armor bearer undertook in this battle was the exercise of their faith. What is interesting in our text is that Jonathan's faith is mostly presented by his actions. Actions are are evidence of what is in our heart. From God's perspective, from the true perspective, it is the spirit first. But from our small human perspective, what we see first is the action. We are called to act. That is what we are called to do. That is our obligation. Yes, that action comes from the Lord, but that does not remove the fact that we are called to act. The outworking of our faith is not simply an intellectual exercise, as though we could sort of comprehend who God is and then sit back and relax. Our text and the rest of Scripture speak to the impossibility of this happening. And they speak of the importance of faith expressing itself in action. Look to Christ. Put your faith in Him. Listen to the Lord tell you about Himself and about what His will is for you as He speaks from His Word. Believe the Lord and trust His promises to you. 
And you will act. It must happen. Not must, so that you will believe, but must because you believe. By the Spirit, the Lord will will grip your heart. He will change your heart. And give you a heart that follows after Him. Embrace God's actions for you. He is the one who will work in you the new heart that will move you to look to Christ. And He, by that same Spirit, will move you to act. In verse 12, we can, we can sort of see everything come together for our text. We, we see Jonathan's faith. We see Jonathan's action for the Lord. We see the context of covenantal faithfulness. We see the context of Israel. We see leading. We see trust. He says, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. The, the statement, in the statement, Jonathan, it, it's almost as if he is taking hold of the promise with both hands and saying, as part of your people, O Lord, we belong to you, body and soul. He's saying, Lord, we can travel through any and every valley Because you are with us and you are at work in us. The Lord acts in more ways than Jonathan could have imagined. Now the actions of Jonathan and his armor bearer are significant enough. Two men killed 20 in in an area about the size of this church building. But Jonathan's actions... And his armor bearer's actions, they're, they're swallowed up by the Lord's actions right after our text. You can see it as you read on beyond verse 14, 15 and following. There is an, there is an earthquake, a panic strikes the entire Philistine army. And the Philistines, verse 20, begin fighting each other with their own swords. The wonder, the irony. Before our text in chapter 13, the verses 16 through 22, we're told in painstaking detail that the Israelites had no swords. They even had to go to the Philistines to get their farm instruments sharpened. They had no swords. But now, after our text, the Lord uses the Philistines' very own swords against them. The wonder of how God acts for his people. The Lord has acted, and he will continue to act for us. He acted for Jonathan, and he acted in Jonathan. That is our comfort. We belong body and soul to Christ. Christ has won the decisive battle. Go forth in faith, in the knowledge of that victory, in the knowledge of God's actions. Whatever challenges are before you, challenges of faith, of family situations, illnesses, employment, trust 
in the Lord. However great the odds of life are against you. The message of our text rings true still today. Know the Lord. Know him intimately. Fix your sights on him and him alone. Look to him in faith and trust and your your actions in him will be blessed and eclipsed by his actions. He will provide you what you need. He will bless you and keep you. He will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And he will give you peace. Amen. Let us now respond to the proclamation of God's word by singing hymn 49. What is in life and death my only aid, my comfort when I am by trouble swayed? Hymn 49, the verses 1 and 2. And if you're able, please rise.